I always love it when I'm able to, to follow the full circle of life with all of you. Some of you I've met when you were single, and I baptized you in Jesus, and then you got married, and I was a part of that wedding, and then you started having kids, and I could dedicate those kids, and one day I'll baptize your kids as well. But I love being there for all of those moments of family life. What an honor it is for, for all of us as a church to be here today to witness uh, today's dedication. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's take out our Bibles. And we are now moving into a brand new chapter and also a brand new section of the book of Romans. If you were to step far back from the book of Romans and look at it from a distance, while each chapter Paul is unfolding more and more truth, and some chapters fit with other chapters, and Paul has gone step by step through a process, if you stand far back from the book and look at it from far, you'll notice that there are two major sections of the book of Romans. The first section is chapters 1 to 11, the second section begins today, chapters 12 until the end, which is chapter 16. You'll find that in the first section of the entire book of Romans, Paul is explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it does for those who believe. We ended last week with those wonderful words, whoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in chapters 1 to 11, Paul discusses the gospel, what it means to believe, the fact that we are saved by faith and not by works. And Paul has gone over this thoroughly through 11 chapters, and now we change into a new section. You see, because while chapters 1 to 11 is about what the Christian believes, chapter 12 to 16 is how the Christian behaves. So first, it's what we believe, and now we get into how we, be, uh, how we behave. And these two things, they must go together, like two sides of the same coin, because what you believe will eventually determine how you behave in life, in every area of life. So as we get into chapter 12 and then 13 and 14, Paul's going to talk about how we behave in the church, how we behave in the world at our workplace, how we behave toward our government, how we behave toward our friends and our family, all of these different situations. And he's not teaching that the way you behave in church is different than the way you behave at home and it's different from the way you behave at work. No. It's all the same, but Paul's going to show us in every context of life, what does it mean now to be a Christian? How does a Christian behave? And if you look at that second half, or the second section now of Romans, when it comes to our behavior as Christians, you'll find two common words among everything Paul is going to teach. In fact, you can boil it down to just one word as well. But the two words you'll find is humility and love. Whether we're talking about in church, at work, or at our government, humility and love. And of course, you could boil it all down just to that one word, love. Love. And so now we've learned a lot about what a Christian believes. But now it's time to learn how a Christian is to behave. 
In fact, one of the things I love about my Bible, I have a New King James Bible. I come to chapter 12, and one of the headings that the Bible gives to me to explain what's coming up, the heading says, behave like a Christian. Well, that's good. I want to know what that says then. Behave like a Christian. So starting today, we're going to get into this new section um, of Romans. Uh, so if you'll turn to Romans chapter 12, today we're going to read verses 1 and 2. The first section of Romans is about our believing. The second section is about behaving. But what we find in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, is kind of like the bridge. How do we go from believing to behaving? Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 gives us the bridge to cross over to the other side of actually living out what we have already learned in the book of Romans. So let's read this bridge together. If we can stand, you won't be standing for long. I'm just going to read these two verses. Chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be confront, uh, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is titled, A Life Worth Living. Oh, I want to know what that means. What is a life worth living? Not according to the world, but according to God. A life worth living. Again, section one, believing. Section two, behaving. And what we read today is the bridge that connects the two parts. And we're crossing that bridge today. If that first section is like the root, then what we read from now until the end of the book is like the flower to that root. It's one thing to read the book of Romans, chapter 1 to 11. It's one thing to learn it, to know it, to be able to explain it to somebody, to believe it. But it's an entirely different thing to actually live what we just read. There are a lot of people who know what the Bible says. In fact, you're going to find that there are a lot of unbelievers that know much of what the Bible says. It's one thing to know what it says. It's another thing to actually do what it says. And that's what we are about to get into in this new section. We go from knowing about God to living for God in every area of life. So here we are. We're at the bridge today. And it's going to take three steps to get over this bridge into the life of behaving like a Christian. So what are the three steps we're going to take over the bridge today? Step number one, we're going to talk about motivation. Step number two, the presentation. Step number three, transformation. And once we cross, cross this bridge, now it's time to be a Christian in this world. You with me? A life worth living. Let's begin with the first step of this bridge and talk about motivation. What is our motivation in striving to walk in obedience with the Lord? 
What is our motivation behind it all? Let's look at this first verse once again. Just the first part of verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I beseech you, Paul says. What does that mean? Well, I can actually remember a time in my life where I experienced something like this. I was very young, but it was a very memorable moment of my life. I was in the fifth grade. I was about 11 years old. My family just moved from the northeast part of America down to the southeast. And even though it's the same country, it's a whole world of difference between cultures. David, you've been to North Carolina. You know what I'm talking about. It's a world of difference between the two. Yeah, we still speak the English language, but it sounds a lot different in the South. And people move differently in the South. And people act differently than we do in the North. So when I was 11 years old, going down to North Carolina, I was like already in some sort of mission field. And I had to learn all over again how to adapt to a brand new culture. And as an 11-year-old boy in the fifth grade, brand new school, I went from a Christian school where I was from to a public school in the center city. It took an hour for my bus to get from my home to the school. And in that school, I felt always out of place. I didn't look like everybody else did. I didn't talk like everybody else did. My interests were much different. And I found it a very lonely experience when I first got there. And as time went by, I was trying to figure out how do I live here? How do I have friends? Because I don't really know how it works down here. Well, I, I made friends with anybody, which ended up being the wrong people. And I started dressing like them. And I started talking like them, which meant when I was 11 years old, I was already speaking every four-letter word you can think of. Oh, I'm embarrassed of my 11-year-old life. My mouth was dirty, and I spoke disrespectful, awful language. I flipped like a switch, and I was a completely different person. I did horribly in school. I didn't do my homework. I basically failed the fifth grade. My teacher was so frustrated with me, instead of helping me through it, she actually learned to embarrass me in front of everybody. And because she embarrassed me in front of everybody, I got bullied by so many kids. Oh, what a rough life I was living. And I felt like there was no good thing that would ever happen in my life at the age of 11. Somehow, someway, I passed the fifth grade, don't know how. And I went to the sixth grade. Same school, same bunch of kids. And when I got to my sixth grade class, all I thought was, here we go again. Here we go again. Back to what I was last year. And I got there, I got to my desk, I was putting stuff inside, and I heard kids talk about Miss Tinsley, our teacher, and how awful she is, and strict, and mean, and this is going to be a horrible year, and I thought, great, another bad teacher, here we go. And about two minutes before the bell rang for class to begin, Miss Tinsley caught my eyes from the front of the room. She said, Heath, come here. And as I walked up to her, she put her arm around me and kind of brought me to the side, away from everybody else. And as everybody was doing their thing, she brought me to the side and she said, Heath, I know that last year was very difficult for you. I know what you've been through, I understand. But this year is a brand new year and I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna do everything I can 
to help you to succeed this year. No more failing. I will help you. And if I help you, just do your part. We'll work together. Now that might not seem like a lot to you, but to now a 12-year-old boy, that meant the world to me. That calling me to her side and putting her arm around me and speaking to me that way, it literally changed my life. I immediately prayed and said, God, forgive me of the words I've been speaking. I don't want to be like that anymore. God healed me of that bad language in a matter of about a couple of weeks. And then I started to care about school because somebody cares for me and somebody promised to help me, so I want to do the best I can for her, Miss Tinsley. And I started that sixth grade year making good grades. I ended the sixth grade year making the best grades in all the school in the entire sixth grade class because somebody believed in me, because somebody put an arm around me. Now, I didn't tell my parents about all this, but on my graduation day, only my father could make it to the school to bring me to my graduation. He came to the school, we went to the graduation ceremony, and I got all kinds of awards for the highest grades in the school, for the volunteer work that I did, raising the flag and, and doing other things for the school. I got awards for this and awards for that. And my father, when he brought me home and my mom said, how did it go? I heard my dad say, I couldn't believe how many times Heath's name was announced. Over and over again, they announced his name and gave him this award and this award and that award. My life changed because somebody beseeched me. What does that word mean? As Paul says it, I beseech you. What does it mean? Well, the English word beseech means there's, there's something urgent I want to tell you. There's something important I want to tell you, and with a sense of, it, of urgency, come here, let me tell you this. It's serious. It's almost like today, if I were to say to you, please, listen to me. I have something so important to say. Please, pay attention and listen to what I'm about to say. That's what it means to beseech someone. And Paul begins this new section with, I beseech you, brethren. I have something so important to tell you. It's kind of like what I like to do with the young people. Sometimes I want to encourage them and just tell them how proud I am. And what do I do after service? Sometimes I'll grab Oscar. Say, Oscar, come here. Hey, good job with what you did at youth the other night. Thanks for doing that. I'm proud of you. That's calling somebody to your side and speaking to them in a wonderful way, just like Miss Tinsley did for me. Now that word beseech is the English word, but the original word that was written, which was in Greek, it's the word par parakaleo. Parakaleo, you can hear the word call in that word. Parakaleo means to call somebody to your side. To call for someone. It's the act of calling someone to your side. And perhaps putting an arm around them and saying, please, listen to me. Listen to what I'm about to say. That's the picture of what the word means. Now, Paul wrote those words, these words. But of course, Paul's not here today. Paul has already gone home to be with our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is not the one who is able to be at our side, to put an arm around us and to speak to us in such ways. But you know what the Bible says? Jesus, before he died and rose again, he said to his disciples in the future, 
very soon from now, when I go, I'm sending another helper to you. Someone who will be with you and in you. Do you know who he was talking about? The Holy Spirit. And Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper or the comforter. It comes from the word parakletos. Parakletos is like parakaleo. Parakaleo is the act of calling somebody to your side, but the parakletos is that person that stands at your side and speaks and speaks and encourages. That's the Holy Spirit. Of course, we don't have Paul today, but we have the Spirit of God who calls. We have the Spirit of God who puts an arm around us and speaks to us the very will of God. He's the one that comforts and who helps and encourages us. He's the one standing by our side. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Every time you see the word therefore, ask what the therefore is there for. Why is it there? Therefore means, Paul is saying, based on everything I just said, which means chapter 1 to chapter 11. Based on everything I just said, here's now what I say to you. We come to a brand new part of the letter to the Romans. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What has Paul been talking about from chapter 1 to chapter 11? Yes, that salvation is the power of God. Yes, that by faith we are justified. We have peace with God. God brings us through a life of sanctification. He has said many wonderful things. But over all things is this. God is merciful. Today, if you are saved, the book of Romans says to you, you're not saved because you run well, because you perform well, because you work, because you read your Bible, because you go to church. No, you are saved because God is a merciful God. God says, I will be merciful and I will be compassionate. Mercy means you did not get what you deserve. Mercy means you did not get what you deserve. Now, according to Romans, what do you deserve? Well, first of all, the Bible says in Romans, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. Secondly, it says, the wages of that sin is death for all eternity. That's what we deserve because we were sinners before God. But what did mercy do? Mercy says, I will not give you what you deserve because you deserve judgment and wrath and punishment. Instead, we receive Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. And by believing in him, we are saved from wrath. It's all because of mercy. So Paul is saying all together here right now, I want you to remember the mercy of God. Everything that we've talked about in Romans 1 to 11, consider all the mercy of God. Consider the fact that God loved you even when you were slaves in your sin. God loved you even when he sent his son to die for you. God has loved you. And out of that mercy, if you can remember it, how should you now respond to God? 
If you can understand God's mercy, how do you respond to that? Maybe it will be like the lady we read in the Gospels. Jesus was sitting at a home, having a meal, and a woman came from outside, something that she was not supposed to do in somebody's house. And she went up to the rabbi, Jesus, which is something she was not supposed to do. And then she got down and began to cry and wash his feet, which she was not supposed to do. Yet she did it all, crying and weeping and worshiping. She washed his feet. Now, why did she do that? Who was that? And where did she come from? And why did she do such a thing? Jesus tells us why. You see, in that story, we find out that this woman, everybody knew her. Everybody knew where she was from and the kind of life she was living. And everybody knew her as the sinner. The sinner. But somehow, someway, before Jesus entered that home, he met that woman. And he forgave her. He healed her. He showed her mercy. Jesus tells us, that's why she washes my feet. Because her sins were many, and yet they have been forgiven her. And this is what she does in response to that mercy. She worships at the feet of Jesus. We are to remember the mercy of God. And you notice the verse says the mercies of God. We're not just talking about one thing. We can look at the cross and say, there's the mercy of God. But there are mercies of God as well. Because I can go beyond what is written in the Bible. I can go beyond what's written on these pages. And I can say, God has been merciful to me. Just as he was merciful to that woman, he's been merciful to me. God has blessed me in my life. And he has blessed me in ways that I do not deserve. He has blessed me in moments that I didn't even know what I needed, yet he blessed me. He has blessed me even though how often I have failed him, how often my faith falls short of what it should be, he has blessed me because he's been merciful to me. God loves me. He's been merciful to me. He has blessed me. He has helped me. In fact, he's helped my entire family through some of the most difficult moments of life. He snatched my youngest daughter, Ella, from the jaws of death, literally. Why? Because he's merciful. God has been merciful to me. So when you come to church, when you come driving to church in the morning, or when you get up in the morning on a Sunday, you're on your way to church. I want all of you from now on, on your way to church, just consider if it's five minutes or 20 minutes, just consider what has the Lord done for you? What has he done for you? And after you meditate on all that God has done for me, then come into his house and sing. Come into his house and lift up your hands. Come into his house and shout for joy. Come into this house with words of thanks from your lips. If you know what God has done, what other thing can we do but glorify his name? Paul's message is, this is the motivation to live a Christian life. God has been merciful. Therefore, I will walk in obedience and glorify the Lord in my life. And when you're done worshiping here and you walk out those doors, walk out those doors 
repeating the scripture verse that says, his mercies are new every morning. Because today, God is merciful to you. And when we walk out those doors and we continue on with life, we don't know what's going to happen two hours from now. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Some might say, well, one thing we know for sure is the sun will rise tomorrow. You know what you can be even more sure of than that? You can be sure God's mercy will be waiting for you yet again. Is there anyone like God? Consider the mercies of God. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. Part two is getting into that word body, but notice he says, present yourself. Present yourself. The Holy Spirit doesn't come along in our life and force us to do things. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and make demands. He doesn't threaten us to act a certain way. Instead, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. And what he wants us to do is to remember God's mercy and then not out of demand, not out of force, not out of threats, but out of love and devotion. Out of love and devotion, serve your God. Present yourselves. His motivation, the motivation, for you to come and present your life to God today and say, God, take my life. It's all yours. What motivates you to do such a thing is his unfailing love and his great mercy. Do you know God's mercy? Do you know it? I'm not asking you, do you know about God's mercy? Do you know God's mercy? If you do, then in light of all that he has done for you, what are you willing to present to him? And that brings us to number two, the presentation. Look again at the second half of that first verse. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God which is your reasonable service, your body. What's Paul talking about? Just simply, my body, here you go, God. Well, yeah, he is talking about that. But everything that involves your body, he's talking about everything involved in your life. Yes, your body. Yes, the work of your hands. Yes, where you want to go in life with your feet. Yes, the words that you speak, but also the thoughts of your mind. And every context of life as well. Your whole life, whether you are a father, a mother, a son, whether you are a worker or a boss, whether you're a church member or anything else, every part of your life, God is calling for at the altar. Present your life, Paul is saying, and everything about you. Present it to God. You know, sometimes when we say things like that, Sometimes we as believers, we shudder a little bit at that. Give my whole life to God? And sometimes, I don't know why, but we often feel like if we give everything to God, then God's going to do something we don't like. If I let God take this part of my life and just take it over, God, but what if he does something I don't want him to do? You ever ask that question? You ever want to pray about something or you know you need to pray about something, but you don't want to because you know God's going to say, 
I need you to change. Prime, prime example, young people, prime example, one day, young ladies, you're going to meet a guy. One day, young men, you're going to meet a girl. And sometimes, if you're not careful, you're going to assume this is the one. I know I'm only 13 years old, but I found the one that I want to spend the rest of my life with. Teenagers do things like that. And I'll hear young people say that, and then I'll say, well, okay, have you prayed about it? No. You know what I say? Well, I'm not surprised. I know you haven't prayed about it. Do you know how I know that? Or do you know why you don't want to pray about it? Because you already know that God probably disagrees with your feeling right now. So many times, we know we need to pray about something in our life, but we don't want to do it because we're afraid that God's going to say no or that God's just going to simply ruin everything. Why do we think that about God? Why, do we, why would we ever think that God is actually out to ruin your life? Or he's going to make a mistake? Or he's going to do something that's going to make you miserable? You think God is like that? You know what God says? He says, my thoughts for you is to give you a hope and a future. My thoughts for you is filled with peace and goodness and joy. My thoughts for you has nothing to do with evil or ruin, or to make you miserable the rest of your life. Why would we ever think God would do something like that? We need to learn to trust in God and to be able to say with all sincerity, here is my life. I offer it to you. In fact, that's what Paul says. We offer our bodies a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. This is what the Holy Spirit calls us to present. A sacrifice to God. Now, what is a sacrifice? You can read about it in the Old Testament. A sacrifice is when somebody would take an animal, slay it, offer it onto an altar, and that was their worship to God. We see Abel doing it all the way in Genesis and all throughout the Scriptures. That's how, God, that's how man met with God, through sacrifice. And every time a man laid a sacrifice on the altar, he was also laying himself upon that altar and saying things like, God, here I am. Add whatever you want to add. Take away whatever you want to take away. Change whatever you want to change. That's what a sacrifice is. Paul calls it right here three different things. The sacrifice that we offer is living, holy, acceptable. I should say, it should be living, holy, and acceptable. This is what God wants. How is it living? Well, because it's an ongoing thing. We're not getting an animal, killing it, and then done. This is an ongoing, day-by-day -day decision of putting your life on the altar. As I live today, God, my life is yours. And then tomorrow when you wake up, as I live today, God, my life is yours. Take away, change, add whatever you want to do. That's a living sacrifice. It is ongoing. And that word living also means to enjoy real life. Oh, I love that. To enjoy real life. Today, I don't care how good you think your life is. If you really want to live life, a life worth living, 
is to make yourself a sacrifice before God every day, your whole life on the altar of God and saying, Lord, have your way. Paul says, now that is real living. It's also to be holy. Just as a lamb was separated from the group of lambs, killed and then offered, and then at that moment it was hands off, it was the Lord's. Holy means to be separated from and devoted to. God has already separated us from the world and from the judgment and wrath and sin of the world. But we are now to be devoted to him. So when you bring yourself to the altar, you can picture yourself saying, God, here I am. Hands off. You do what you want to do. I am separated for your purposes. I'm devoted to you. Living, holy, acceptable. Acceptable means to be well-pleasing. It is well-pleasing to God to see you offer yourselves as a sacrifice to him. It is well-pleasing to God. Do you know, we want to be well-pleasing to others. It's like what a husband should be for his wife. Wives, if I don't describe your husband right now, you can hit him a little bit. A, a husband, if he loves his wife, as I know all of you do, don't you want to figure out what makes your wife happy? Yeah? That's step one. Notice the things that give joy to your wife. Step two, do the things that give joy to your wife. That's what it means to be well-pleasing. Jesus said about the Father, Jesus said, I do all those things that please my Father. I know what satisfies him. I know what gives him joy. And I do the things that give him joy. That's what love is all about. So when we come to God, we are coming with a sacrifice, living, holy, and well-pleasing. This is what makes God pleased. So let's do the things that please the heart of God. And that verse ends by saying, all of this is your reasonable service. Offer your life as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable. This is your reasonable service. In other words, this is what makes sense, doesn't it? If you consider the mercy of God, shouldn't we conclude that our whole lives should be given to him? This word reasonable, it means to be logical. In other words, as we would say, it is logic to say one plus one equals two. That's logical. In the same way, it's logical to say this, add up all the mercies of God in your life and that equals to my life on the altar for him. It is reasonable. It is logical. It makes sense. God's not ask, asking you to do too much. This is what he deserves. This is the conclusion to the mercy of God to present our lives as a sacrifice for him. If I were to ask you, what is God worth to you? What's he worth to you? You might say, well, he's worth everything. Is he? What is God worth to you? Your answer to that question, your answer is truly revealed 
in what you are willing to offer on that altar. If you say, yes, he's worthy of my whole life, then bring your whole life to the altar and say, God, it's all yours. All of it. Every aspect of my life. Your will be done, not mine. Motivation, presentation, and last, transformation. Paul says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to the world, Paul says. To conform yourself, it means you take a mold, you press something into it. Any of you people ever want to make a, a cookie and you make it into the shape of a star or into the shape of a, a gingerbread man, what does that involve? It involves taking dough and pressing it into a mold. Or take your kids to the beach and they take this plastic mold and they pick up wet sand and they press it into the mold and then the baker and your child, they flip the molds over, take it away, and what's left? The exact impression of the mold. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. Now when he says, do not be conformed, and then he says, but be transformed, it means you have a decision to make. God doesn't just do this all on your own and you just sit back and let him do it. It's up to you. It's your decision to not be conformed to the world. I probably don't have to explain to you how evil this world is and how much they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Every society, there's a taste of it there. They hate the Lord. And if they hate the Lord, what do they think about you if you're living for the, the Lord? There's wickedness everywhere. Your young people, our young people who watch social media, who are paying attention to pop culture, it is nothing but wickedness. Paul says don't allow yourself to be put in the hands of the world so that they can mold you into what they do. Don't do what they do. Don't talk like they talk. Don't desire the things the world does. Do not be. You decide. I don't want to be like the world. I want to be like Jesus. Secondly, he says, but be transformed. That word transformed is wonderful. It means metamorphosis. And the only great example I have of that word is a butterfly. You all know what happens. A caterpillar wraps itself in a coffin, basically, and it dies. It turns into a fluid substance, and it regrows into a brand new creature. And what comes out of that cocoon is much different than what went into that cocoon. That's a transformation. Now, on one hand, we have been transformed by the Spirit of God. Amen? The Bible says that when you believed in Jesus, you were born again. You went from spiritual death to spiritual life. And I call that a wonderful transformation. But there's more that needs to be done. And again, it's your decision. It's your decision, as Paul says, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, before we met Jesus, we thought whatever we wanted to think. And our thoughts were probably not good. And we did the things that we thought. But God has saved you. 
And now he wants to shape your mind to think heavenward, to think of Christ, to be like Christ, to have the character of Christ. Well, if it's our decision to be that, to renew our minds, how do we do it? Well, first of all, it's the work of the Spirit in your life. Second of all, and I know you're going to love this, it's by opening your Bible. Not on a Sunday morning only when I'm preaching, but when you go home and tomorrow morning you wake up, it's about opening your Bible and reading for yourself. Having your own devotion. Coming to God on your own and saying, Lord, I'm about to read your word. Show me Christ. God, reveal to me you. Show me what you want me to do. Show me, Lord, how this applies to my life. Show me how I can actually put this into action in my daily life. And as you come to the Word of God, through the Spirit and through the Word, God begins to renew your mind to think in ways you've never thought before and to change you on the inside and to change your character. Paul says when you are transformed, when you have that time with the Lord and He begins to change you, and you begin to see things differently, hear things differently, do things differently, behave like a Christian. When you do that, Paul ends up by saying this, you will prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You're going to prove it. You know what that means? It means you're not going to just say, yes, I believe God's word is acceptable, and it is, it's wonderful, it is good. You're going to know it by experience. To prove means try it. Try it. Go ahead. Trust God by giving him your life. Try him, and then it will prove that indeed his will is perfect for you. My wife and I brought some gold jewelry to a jewelry store last year, and they, and they took this jewelry and they put it into a crucible, and then they heated it up very, very hot. Now, we told them that this gold, I don't know, it's 22 carat, 24 carat, but how can they know that for sure? Just because we tell them? No. It's got to be proven. They've got to try it with fire. And when they melt it, they melt it, melt it into a glob of gold, and then they scrape it on a substance. And by doing that, they are trying it by fire, and then they scrape it, and then they prove, yes, it is 24 carat, 23, 22, whatever it is. So if we are to prove the will of God, it means go ahead now. You see what he says. You see what he's calling you to do. Now do it. Try it. Put it in the fire. Try it. Experience it for yourself. And you know what you'll do? You will prove that God's will indeed is good, acceptable, perfect. It's good because God is good. And everything he does is good. It is acceptable because we can trust in what he says. Even when we don't understand it, we can accept the things God does in us. The Israelites that came to the land of Canaan, God told them, now go and take the land. I've given it to you. They sent 12 spies to spy out the land. And when they came back, they said to Israel, the land is fruitful. It's bountiful. It's a wonderful land. Here's the fruit. But 10 of those spies said, 
The only problem is there's giants in there. The Amalekites, they're too big, too strong, too fortified. We can't do it. What were they saying? That God's will was unacceptable. Unacceptable, God, I won't do it. But Caleb and Joshua, the other two, they said, no, don't say that, brothers. Don't be afraid. Let's go and take the land. We can trust in God. To Joshua and Caleb, God's will was acceptable. But to all the others, it was unacceptable. God was angry about that. Do you know what the Bible says about Joshua and Caleb? The Bible says of these two that they wholly followed God. Meaning their whole life followed God. They trusted in God with every area of their life. They were living sacrifices on the altar. God's will, they found it to be acceptable. And it is perfect. Perfect. You know, sometimes I wonder, all the angels of heaven, when they look down upon us and they see what God is doing in our lives, they know what we don't know. We don't know what happens tomorrow. We don't know what God's going to do in our lives five years from now, let alone two minutes from now. But the angels see it all. And I can imagine when, when the angels see what God is doing for this woman, and they say, oh God, praise your name, because we see the whole plan. We see her today and for all eternity to come. You are perfect in everything you're going to do. Yet that woman has no idea. All she knows is what's happening today. Or God, what you're doing in that man, oh, five years from now, he will finally understand that everything you've done is leading him to this place. He can't see it yet, but God, we do. You are perfect. And the Bible says the angels glorify God. His ways are perfect. He's righteous. Everything he's done, he does is good. They see it all. The problem is we don't see it. So God is asking you, by faith, trust in me and know that what I do is perfect. Amen? Musicians, would you come? The bridge we cross into the life of behaving as a Christian. We are motivated. There's something to present and transformation. Motivation, presentation, transformation. A life that is presented upon the altar of God. A life that is in the perfect will of God. A life overflowing with the mercies of God and the goodness of God and the peace of God. That is a life worth living. Amen? So as we sing here today, as we worship together, Sister Yanti, you can lead us in a song. As we do that, if you're here today and you say, God, I've heard you today. I hear. God, today you have beseeched me. And I know you're calling me. So God, today, here I come to this altar, right here. Here I come to the altar to offer myself a living sacrifice. Whatever that means, God, I may not know it all. I want my life to be yours. As we're singing this song, if that's you, come to this altar and I'll meet with you and pray with you and believe in God. Or if you're here today and you're experiencing something in your family or in your life in general, and at this point you say, God, I have no more answers. I don't know what to do anymore. 
So today, I'm bringing it to the altar, and then it's hands off. God, I give it to you, because I don't know what to do anymore. If that's you, come meet me here at the altar as we sing, and I'll pray with you and believe.